We have been looking uh, this semester, or have begun a series, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, posing the, the Scriptures this question, what would possibly cause people throughout the last, you know, at least 2,000 years of human history to abandon everything in the service of this man? Uh, and we come to a story that clearly was a favorite one of Luke, because it's the only place where the story occurs in the New Testament. Uh, but Luke was clearly fascinated by the story, which we assume was told him uh, by uh, Mary directly. But it actually reminded me in reading this of another story that I read for a number of years ago that came from uh, a magazine uh, excerpt from a book written by none other than star of stage and screen, uh, uh, Rob Lowe. Apparently, these are the opening couple of paragraphs from this guy's book. Listen to this. He says, I'm trying to remember when I felt like this before, like an elephant sitting on my chest, like my throat is so tight and constricted that I can feel its tendons. My eyes are like 100% water spilling out at will down pathways on my face that have been dry for as long as I can think of. I'm trying to remember... When was the last time my heart was breaking? The death of my mother was one time, but her passing was prolonged enough to let me prepare for it to the extent anyone can. At the most intense moment sitting at her gravesite, I felt like I could hear every leaf blower in a 50-mile radius. Felt as if I could feel the sun's rays turning my skin darker shades with each second. My skin irritated and jumpy, making me want to crawl out of it. I'm feeling it all now again. But no one has died. I wonder if you know what he's talking about right there. Actually, what he's referring to is what it was like to drop his son off at college. And since I was wanting to talk about the burden of parenthood, and I just had to do that about three weeks ago, that became my illustration this morning. So there you go. But I really was looking for any sort of illustration to talk about the power of parenting But it occurred to me that I'm not really sure I've got to try very hard. Is there anyone in this room who would not say that they were deeply and profoundly shaped by their relationship with their parents? Either for better or perhaps even for worse, the role that your parents play in your life is huge. Well, in the story that we get today from Jesus, we find Jesus in kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Because on the one hand, he's the child of parents, worried parents as it turns out. And he's on a trip, and they lose him. And once they find him, Mary, of course, in the midst of some understandable and very powerful fear, kind of scolds him and tells him about the importance of his parents. Well, at that moment, the 12-year-old Jesus, 12 years old, uncorks probably one of the bigger doozies of truths that actually uh, talked about his dual parentage. Dual parentage. And in this revelation, we get one of Christianity's most dearly held truths about who Jesus was, and it's simply this, Jesus was God's son. That's what we've believed. So this morning I'm going to look at it through the prism of three ideas. First of all, the revelation of Jesus' sonship. Secondly, the meaning of his sonship. And then thirdly, the significance for us in that sonship. Okay? Revelation, meaning, and significance. Let's start with the revelation. You know, every passage we've done up until this time, uh, people are talking about Jesus, but we finally get to hear uh, what Jesus thinks about himself. And I realize that the story might strike you as a bit strange if you're not familiar with the culture surrounding where Jesus was living. But notice that Luke is specific to point out that Jesus was 12 years old. Now, that's an important time. 
For a young Jewish boy, 12 years old would have begun an important point leading you up to turning 13 years old. Because when you turned 13, according to early sort of Jewish Mishnah sources, you actually would become a man. You would go through your bar mitzvah when you were 13 years old. And so at your 12th birthday, you would enter into a very intense relationship with your father. For an entire year, he would be giving you instructions on, uh, on the law and the Bible. Uh, he would be walking you through how best to run and oversee the family. In other words, Jesus would have been with Joseph, his father, a lot during this time when they make this trip to uh, Passover. So they go to Passover, and they're on their way back uh, from the whole event, and they look around, and suddenly Jesus is not with them. In the midst of the panic that happens that you can only feel when you've lost your child, they go through the temple, and they find him there, stumping the religious rulers with their questions. Okay? What in the world is he doing there? Well, Mary, of course, frustrated, angry, probably scared, looks at him and says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. But notice, it's 12 years old because now the fact that we know that Jesus is 12 helps us know what's kind of behind Mary's statement. In other words, it's almost as if she's saying, how could you treat your father this way? I mean, of all years, Jesus, this is the one year that you should be doing the will of your father. And of course, Jesus basically looks up at her and says, Mom, I am. But you don't understand. You know, she says, your father, but he says, my father. In other words, this is supposed to be the year, Jesus says, that my father reveals to me what it is I'm supposed to be doing. And frankly, we, don't, we really don't know a lot about the communication between God the Father and God the Son during this year. We don't know how God was communicating these things, but we do know the content. God the Father was revealing to Jesus about His Sonship about his belonging to him. This is why everybody's confused when he says, I'd be about my father's business. No one gets what he's saying. Well, look, um, one of the reasons why this sort of strikes us as odd is because we live in a Western society that doesn't have any idea of what that culture would have referred to as uh, filial responsibility or filial duty. And that is basically the duty that a son had to the family. There was no other allegiance that you could have had or been about the business of, which was bigger than your family. Jesus is basically saying, look to to his mother, I have a relationship with God that transcends our relationship. And because it transcends it, it actually relativizes my relationship with you. In other words, I have a relationship with God that goes deeply beyond anything that normal human beings have. Wow. Wow. And look, you've got to understand that from, we know from ancient historical sources that this was like the last thing that a Jewish person was expecting. There's nothing sort of in the categories to say, that, 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 to speak of Yahweh as your father, to talk of God as being your father, certainly not for the father to come in the flesh in that particular way. Jesus is making a radical claim, and he's 12, which leads me to the second point. Well, so what does all that mean? Jesus reveals himself as the Son of God at 12 years old. What's the meaning? Well, it means at least two things, according to John Piper. I found a wonderful article on this. Where John Piper says two things. First, it means that Jesus is God. I realize that that for many of you, you're now facing for sometimes the first time uh, the objection that might come from many people 
that Jesus never actually claimed to be God in the New Testament? You ever heard anybody say that? Well, actually, please gently correct them and let them know that he did so when he was 12. The Bible's full of these references. Colossians 2.9, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Philippians 2.6, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And it's not just Paul. John, John, in John 1, verses 1 and 14, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus was not just a high-ranking human. He was actually the very Son of God. And C.S. Lewis illustrates this wonderfully uh, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, where he talks about the difference between a father giving birth to a child versus a father making something. When a father makes something, he creates. But when he gives birth, he is begetting. You know, that's the way they talk in the Bible. Lewis says this. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A a, a beaver begets little beavers. And birds beget eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make or create, you make something different from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, and a man makes a computer or whatever. And so Christianity is always taught that the Jesus was the very same divine nature that God was from the very beginning. And the reason why we use the language of begetting is so that we can hold on to the sameness that Jesus had with His Father. There's an essential sameness. And yet, because He's the Son and not the Father... There's a distinctiveness as well. This is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Our standards put it this way. He says, these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. So it means that Jesus was God. (laughs) Of all the things that we would say make this Jesus compelling, the claim for Him to be God is up up on the list somewhere. But the second thing Piper says is that Jesus' sonship means that the Father's relationship with Jesus was special. It was different. There was no love that was revealed among men than the kind of love that the Father had for His Son, Jesus. So much so that it's different from any kind of human love. Um, There is a strange and wonderful little uh, Bible fact that you'll find out when you sort of dig through the New Testament and you look for the things that God the Father says. You know, Jesus gets to say a fair amount of things. When do we hear from God the Father? Do you realize that in the New Testament, every single time that you hear God the Father speaking, do you know what He's doing? He's doting over His Son. And over and over again throughout the New Testament, when we find out what the Father is working on and revealing to His Son, He keeps telling Jesus how much He loves Him. In John 3.35, the Father loves the Son, and He's given all things into His hand. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. In Matthew 12.18, there's a quote from Isaiah 42 where it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. The little word well pleased in Hebrew uh, literally means to delight in. Like there's nothing that I can be more excited about than looking at the face of my son, God the Father is saying. That's the revelation. You know, um, Derek Redman was uh, the fastest man on the planet 
heading into the 1992 uh, Summer Olympics in Barcelona. Uh, He had already captured the gold uh, in the 400-meter dash earlier on in the World Championships and actually cruised through the quarterfinal uh, in the Olympics until finally he got there in the semifinals and was off to a rifling start. But as he reached sort of that third curve, uh, that's when it happened. His hamstring snapped. Redmond would later on look and say that he thought that he had been shot in the back of the leg by somebody in the stands. And, of course, he collapsed on the track. Well, at at that moment, the sort of uh, medical professionals race onto the track with a stretcher to haul the poor man off. And Redmond famously waved him off, you know, said no. He was going to finish that race. And so he finds a way to get himself standing up and barely able to move, he starts to limp towards the finish line. Well, all of a sudden, while he's working through this, tears streaming down his face, out comes a fella who burst through the crowd, who apparently had muscled past the security, and grabbed Redmond around the arm and got him up underneath his shoulder and started walking him down the track the rest of the 100 yards so he could finish the, the, the cross the finish line. Well, it took the announcers a few minutes to realize exactly who the man was. It turned out to be Redmond's father. Okay, so in 1992, I was spending the summer in Washington, D.C. working, and I was sitting next to a friend watching that whole scene go out, and I'm telling you, you do not have a soul if that did not move you to tears. We were bawling like babies in that moment. And the question was, and the question is for you, that apparently was nowhere near as moving for you as it was for me. But maybe you don't have a soul. I don't know. Um, The question became, why is it that those things move us? Why do the stories about daddies who love their sons well do that to us? Is it possible that the only explanation for the universal experience of being drawn in by those stories is the fact that at the center of the universe there is a father and a son relationship that eclipses all relationships and relativizes even earthly family relationships. What if that was the case? Look, Christians have held on fiercely to this truth about Jesus being God and Jesus being God's Son, but they've also delighted in the thought that the Father adores the Son and that brings me to the last question. Why? <laughs> we see, first of all, the revelation of, of Jesus' sonship. We see the meaning of it. And, but I want to ask a quick question in closing, and that is, what's the significance for us? Why would this mean something? Well, simply because I think that what the earliest readers and the earliest listeners to the stories about Jesus understood is they understood that he was on a mission. Jesus was there to accomplish something. He wasn't just there to sort of teach a new uh, uh, pattern for living, but he was working something out by revealing to us the fact that he was a son. And do you know what that was? He was revealing the fact that in God's economy, he had shown up to do something that would bring all of God's followers, brace yourself, into the same relationship that he had with his follower, with his father. (laughs) In other words, the goodness of the sonship that he experienced with his father was to be shared 
by all the people who were in union with him. That was the explosive truth that came into it. And actually get this all over the New Testament. The best place, I think, is in Romans chapter 8, where Paul gets pretty jazzed about this idea, where he starts to think about the fact of our adoption into Jesus' family. And he says this. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Okay, look, (laughs) y'all. This is a giant doctrine in biblical theology, the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption actually is one of the most preciously held on truths, and there's good reasons for it. Some of you were here actually a few weeks ago when we were able to baptize uh, the adopted children in the Pierce family, one of our beloved church families here. And during that baptism, Kurt quoted from one of my favorite quotes by a guy named J.I. Packer. You need to know the name J.I. Packer. Among 20th century theologians, he's a big one. But in his book, Knowing God, he talks about our adoption. Now look, you got to quote J.I. Packer to say things this over the top. Okay, listen to this. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And how much and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Huh. For every for everything that Christ taught, this is it gets worse. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now listen to this one. This was, this was the poetry that moved me. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Pause for effect. Our Understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, if there is one piece of theological knowledge that will let you know whether you get Christianity, it will be about how much you understand your sonship before the Father or your being a daughter before the Father. In other words, there is no truer metric of your own spiritual health than by whether or not you understand this truth. Tim Keller wrote an article a number of years where he started to unpack the benefits that accrue to Jesus' people when you understand your adoption. He says there's six of them. Number one, there's an enormous amount of security. You know, in an ancient Near Eastern household, you would have had slaves and children working in the same household. You ever thought about this? And when they were all children, they probably would have looked somewhat the same. You had sons working right alongside slaves. But you know, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two until you begin to ask them about what was going on internally, about why they were serving. You see, the slave, the spirit of slavery, 
is one that works out of fear of what the master is going to do if they don't do their work. In other words, it's a slavishness to that fear that says, well, I better work under a compulsion. But how different is the son? The son works in an entirely different mindset where he works instead because his father loves him. Because he knows that in this place, my service is meant to someone that I care about who has made me safe as a kitten in the place where I am. That's entirely different, Paul says. So here's the question. Are you a slave or are you a son? I... I have spoken to pastors who have said that they worked as pastors for decades before the Spirit brought home to their hearts that they were not serving in God's house as slaves, but as children. Take yourself a little spiritual temperature as to how my service in God's kingdom is going. Are you serving as a slave or as a son? Because it may be that one of the reasons why I don't serve well is because I'm serving as a slave. Hard to be a slave. A little better to be a son. Security. Number two, intimacy, Keller says. We cry out, Abba, Father, which is to say that Christians can approach their father like a good daddy. You know, sometimes I like to imagine what it's like to be a young child of a young president. I wonder what, it, what, happens, when, what happens when you want to go in and see daddy at that point. Can you just burst right into the Oval Office and interrupt him with the heads of state and you know, bring your issue to the table, jump up in daddy's lap? I have no idea. Maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. But what Paul is realizing is, Jesus will never do that. That we can burst into our father's house, no matter what, no matter what business he's about. There's an intimacy that exists that we can look and say daddy to him. Thirdly, Keller says there's an assurance that comes from this. When we do cry out, the Spirit of God shows up and assures us. As a matter of fact, there's some hint here that Paul is saying that one of the main things that the Spirit does, and one of the main ways in which you can see the Spirit's fingerprint on your life, are in those moments where it just washes over you. And you think to yourself, He loves me. He really loves loves me. My Father cares for me. I am in His hands. And suddenly there washes over you this sense of just like, ah, an assurance. And you know, that's the Spirit drawing us near, reassuring us. Fourthly, Paul says that there's an inheritance that we have. He looks and says that actually we have now become co-heirs. Jesus is going to inherit everything. But since, we're, since he's our big brother, we're going to share in his inheritance. And again, you can, you can think all you want about the cattle on a thousand hills if you want. That's all true. But what Paul is attracted to is the fact that our inheritance is of God. It's of God. In other words, what is in store for us is the same thing that is in store for Jesus when he went back to heaven after the cross. It's like a summer rain coming down. What reception did Jesus get when he went back to his father after the cross ended and the whole resurrection and ascension happened? What was that reunion like? Because that inheritance is yours if you know Jesus this morning. Fifth, there's a discipline. You know, one of the things that Keller mentions is that when parents discipline a child, what you're doing is you're introducing a small amount of pain 
in the hopes that that small amount of pain will sort of inoculate them from a greater pain that's coming later, right? That's what discipline is. But what happens to oftentimes Christians, and look, you, you've said it before, I've said it, when all of a sudden pain and suffering enters your life, have you ever found yourself saying things like, what, what did I do to deserve this? I don't know what I did. I mean, I must have I messed up somewhere. Or even worse, you know what? God's punishing me for that thing. Finally, I have caught up to it. I'm now on his outs. It's all out here. A son never talks that way. A son looks at discipline, he looks and goes, you know what? I don't know what my father's purpose is in this. I really don't. But I know that it can't be punishment. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. (laughs) What it has to be is some kind of surgery. There's a little pain that he's giving me to help inoculate me from a big pain that may be coming down later. But it can't be that he doesn't love me. It can't be. And then sixthly, Keller says that there comes a family likeness. Paul realizes that will be Jesus' sufferings that will be, that will be like us. But if you think about it, you always kind of turn into whatever you admire. You ever thought about that? Whatever you admire most in life, the people that you look up to, maybe you actually had a big brother that you looked up to. I have a photograph uh, um, uh, that, that Ginger and I kept uh, when I was uh, living over at our house over on the west side of town. Uh, where I was mowing the grass, okay? And we had this huge corner lot. I told my wife when we moved into our latest house, do not bring home a corner lot. I'm not cutting another corner lot because we've only ever lived on corners. But I have this sort of uh, lawn mowing sort of thing, and right behind me is Luke. And Luke has got to be like three years old. That's my son. He's got to be like three or four years old, but he got one of those little plastic lawn mowers, you know, that kind of makes the click, 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 click sound as he goes behind me. And Ginger was you know, smart enough to kind of snap a quick picture of him right behind me. That's what we're talking about. When you look up, there's a time in which you just kind of want to do whatever your big brother's doing. To follow daddy around and imitate him. And what Keller is saying and what Paul is saying is that that's what Christians are. We're turning into the likeness of our Father. Look, here's the point. Jesus revealed to us His Sonship so that we could live as beloved children. That's it. That's the theme of the sermon, in case, you were, in case you missed it. Jesus reveals to us His Sonship so that we could live as beloved children. And there's nothing sweeter that I could leave you with today. A couple months ago, my family got to watch this movie called Wonder. Uh, the movie is about this uh, severely disfigured, facially disfigured uh, little boy named Augie who decides he's going to leave homeschool and go and join the fifth grade uh, at the public school with all the, all the people. And you know... It, It really is a movie about there being pain everywhere. Uh, The boy is in pain because of his disfigured face. His father is in pain because of his own son's pain. His mother feels pain because she had to give up her life, set aside finishing her dissertation to take care of Augie. Uh, The sister is in pain because she feels left out because the whole family has to build their life around Augie. It happens all the time in handicapped homes. There's, There's a bully in the story that actually has terrible parents, and there's a best friend named Jack who comes from a poverty-stricken home and is in fear every day of losing his scholarship. There's pain everywhere. But the whole theme of the movie is going out of its way to show that the power of a parent's love for his child can relativize it all. Not to take it away necessarily, but to put it in context. Now look, I wept like a baby at the part during the movie where the father sort of confronts Augie's habit of wearing a mask. Augie doesn't want to be seen by anybody, so he wears a mask around all the time. 
And at one point, the father looks at him and is kind of like, why do you got to wear that mask? And at one point, he says this. He says, you know, I know you don't always like your face, but I love it. It's my son's face. It's happening right now. He said, it's my son's face. And I want to see it in the midst of all of its scars. Look, I know you say this morning that you know that you're God's child and you know God loves you. But what I'm asking you is something deeper. Has that truth satisfied your heart? Has it become your treasure? Because I'm not sure there could be anything more transformational that could happen to you this morning by letting that become something that you value. Maybe? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would your Spirit speak it to our hearts even now? Maybe even while we lift our hearts in song to you, would you speak your love for us, our sonship that we have, because you are our big brother. It's amazing to us. At 12 years old, you began to share this with us. It must have been important. And so thank you. Thank you for what you've done in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.